Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9, this is what God's word says. He, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we ask that you would help us to understand and to receive this very holy word and truth that you have given to us, that you would help us to receive it by faith, trusting in the verity of your word, and that we would indeed humble ourselves and hear what you have to say and to give our only regard to what you have to think. We ask that your spirit would speak to us now, that it would be your word spoken to us, not the words of mere man, and that you would minister to our souls. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. There are some passages in the Bible that seem rather difficult to figure out the point that is being made. and Sometimes you have to do a lot of work to figure out that point. I'll tell you right now that throughout our study in the Gospel of Luke, there have been several instances of me needing to grapple with the text all week long, sometimes even longer, uh, and labor to understand what God is saying to his people through that particular text. But as we come this morning to this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the point is made quite clear for us. As we are told very plainly at the outset in verse 9 that Jesus told this parable because there were some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. This parable is pointed by design, directed at those who believe that they are right with God and will one day be accepted by him and enter into heaven to be with Christ forever because... They believe themselves to be decently good people. This describes so many churches and so many churchgoers and even non-churchgoers in this country, in this world today. That they believe that they are acceptable to God because on the basis of having tried their best to live a morally upright life. In other words... Their confidence and their trust is in their own righteousness. But friend, if this describes you this morning, you need to come to grips with this parable. And you must understand that that is simply false. That is not the gospel, and that is not what the Bible says at all. 
And you cannot and you will not enter the kingdom of heaven by trusting in your own merits. And if this is you, if that's what you believe, that you are at this moment not right with God. And you fully remain in the guilt of your sin for which you stand to be eternally and rightfully punished. Because, Romans 3.10, no one, not some, not many, not most, but no one is righteous. Not even one. No one is good in the sight of God who is holy, whose eyes are too pure to look upon even a speck of unrighteousness. And we have a lot more than just specks. But listen, Jesus is not telling this parable just to condemn the self-righteous into hopeless oblivion. But he is dismantling the empty facade and bankruptcy of self-righteousness to direct our hearts and minds to the truth of the gospel. That God has sent his son into this world to call sinners to not trust in their own worthless righteousness, so-called righteousness, but to trust in Jesus' perfect righteousness accomplished for them. And true saving faith is this. When a sinner comes to understand and realize how unrighteous he really is before God who is holy. And so, confessing his own unrighteousness, he places his trust and confidence in the free gift of righteousness that is in Jesus Christ. And at that moment of genuine saving faith, God pronounces the believer perfectly righteous in his sight. How? On what basis? On the basis of Jesus and his perfect righteousness given to the believer, such that the believer is now forever pleasing to him. That is the gospel, the good news of God's salvation. And this This is what's at stake in this parable of two men who really couldn't be more uh, different in every way. And the result of their eternal destinies couldn't be more different and counterintuitive to their profiles, to their resumes, if you will. Now, Jesus begins by presenting these two men and really their titles speak for themselves. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. Now, on the one hand, we have the Pharisee who was the esteemed spiritual leader of the Jewish community. The term Pharisee meant the separate ones or the pious ones. They were the religious cream of the crop, separated, distinct, distinguished from everybody else. Heads and shoulders above all of the people around them in their commitment to religious piety and moral superiority. Their entire lives were committed to scrupulous law-abiding and unmatched devotion to every religious duty. And so in the Pharisee, we have the most moralistic man you could meet, who strives after with all of his might, who was obsessed with proving himself to be a good person. But you know, it wasn't just talk, actually. Uh, he, 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 in a sense really engaged himself in real action to show for it, as he testifies in his own prayer that he fasted twice a week, every week. No, this wasn't just a diet. He wasn't just on keto or whatever, paleo. He was fasting, spiritual disciplines. He gave a tenth of everything that he received. Now, why was the Pharisee so zealously bent on this lifestyle? Because he was determined 
to prove his worth before God. That compared to everyone else, he is the outstanding worthy candidate to receive God's approval and to receive what he believed to be his due rewards. Because he's earned it by his life. And so that's the Pharisee, the the religious zealot, the pious moralist, noticeably set apart from everybody else. But on the other hand, amongst the pool of the everybody else, we have here a man who dwells in the deepest, darkest trenches of the abyss of that pool, the tax collector. Now, when we say tax collector, he wasn't just a CPA who did your taxes, nor was he just an employee of the IRS. But as we've seen time and time again throughout our study of Luke's gospel, the tax collector was the scum of all scums of Jewish society. And the reason was because the Roman government, they collected taxes over their entire empire, And they had outsourced the collection of taxes to private Roman contractors for the highest bid. And so those contractors would go and hire Jewish lackeys to do the job of collecting taxes from their own kinsmen, from the Jewish people. Now you think, oh, well, that's a big deal. Well, the issue was that these Jewish tax collectors, they had nearly unmitigated power to collect as much as they wanted, far above what Rome demanded. And they would pocket the rest for themselves. And that's exactly what they did. They robbed from their own people. And to make matters worse, it was by aligning themselves, by serving the foreign Roman government under whose oppressive regime the Jews were subjugated. And so the tax collectors were viewed as traitors of their own people, as though they were pimping out their fellow Jews to the Romans for their own personal gain. And they were really doing it for personal shameful gain, extorting one another. I mean, these were the lowest of the low in terms of being immoral and unethical. And I know we talk so much about how much Jesus loved tax collectors, but we need to understand that Jesus did not love them for their lifestyle and ethics and character, but he shockingly loved them in spite of it all. In other words, Tax collectors were genuine extortioners and crooks. They weren't castigated unfairly as unclean, but they were really conspicuously unclean. They were the kind that you would tell your kids to stay away from and for good reason. And so you see, we have here two men who came to the temple that day to pray. The tax collector who was unquestionably a wretched sinner who had no other option but to acknowledge his own, unwretched, his own wretchedness And the Pharisee, who worked tirelessly all his life to stay away as far as possible from having any association with the bad people of this world, like the tax collector, who believed himself to be morally exceptional, a good person acceptable to God. Now, if we cut to the chase, we see the punchline at the end of this parable that it was not the Pharisee who was justified, who was righteous in God's sight, but it was a tax collector. Why? Well, their prayers revealed everything. Let's first look at the Pharisee who prayed with self-righteousness. Verse 11, he prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. Someone wasn't closing his eyes while he was praying. But notice how the entire focus is on himself. I, I thank you for what I am. 
Sure, he prays outwardly to God. Sure, he even knows to give thanks to God. Wow! How, how godly! But despite being dressed in all of this spiritual language, the Pharisee is not facing God. He is not beholding God. But he's facing and beholding himself. Exalting and glorying in himself. In fact, notice how verse 11 begins. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Now, you might see a footnote in your Bible. I have mine in my ESV translation. And if you look at the bottom, it'll say, or you could also render it. The Pharisee, standing, prayed to himself. Which I think is actually the better and more accurate rendition. That he was praying toward himself. About himself. For himself, unto himself. Everything was directed to himself. And that's really what he was doing, wasn't it? God, I praise you. Ooh, that sounds really good. But what I praise you for is for my praiseworthy self. What a good person I am. What a spiritual man I am. What a godly, what a set-apart man I am. So unlike everybody else. So unlike the wicked in this world. Oh, how tempting it is for the Christian to think like this. And how often we do, very subtly in our own hearts. But the Pharisee here is saying, I thank you that I am good. Now, the issue is this. How does this Pharisee define what is good? Why does he think he is good in his own eyes? Because he says... I thank you that I am not like other men. Literally, he says, I am not like the rest of men, the rest of all these people. Compared to everybody else, especially the conspicuously immoral ones, I am good because I am not like them. Because to the contrary, look at what I do. Look at how I live my life, my virtuous lifestyle choices. Other people indulge in carnal desires, but I fast twice a week. Other people steal, but I give tithes and offerings. You see the issue? The self-righteous Pharisee measures his righteousness based on relative morality. Finding someone worse to compare himself to. Hence it says that Jesus told this parable to those who trusted self and treated others with contempt. He looked th- that they looked down on others. Because you need to in order to elevate and exalt yourself. But it's all meaningless and pointless. Why? Because true morality and virtue before God is not relative, but it is absolute. You know, some time ago, someone in our congregation asked me this question. What exactly does the word righteousness mean? So when we say it, but what does it actually mean? How would one explain that in layman's terms? Now, this is an excellent question. We should always be asking these kinds of questions because, frankly, we're always saying all kinds of words within the church, and we rarely take the time to stop and think about what it actually means. And if you, say, if you find yourself saying a word, like atonement, and you find that you are unable to explain that and unpack that 
in your own words and simple conversational terms, then you would really do well to wonder if you fully grasp the meaning of it. I have to do that all the time. That's what I'm doing half the time all week uh, in leading up to the sermon. But so the question, what exactly does righteousness mean? Well, my response was this, that the word righteousness is related to words like rectitude or correctness, being correct. And if you think about all those words, they all imply that there is an absolute standard that something is being compared to. I mean, you can even see this in, in the etymology of the word righteousness or rectitude, which stems from the Latin root rectus, which means what? To be straight, to be aligned, which begs the question, aligned with what? To be righteous means to be correct, to be perfectly in accord. If you're a high school student, a middle school student, you take tests and you're doing a math test, how do you know that question number 13, the correct answer is B and not C? Based on what? The answer key. And so, to be righteous before God means to be in accord according to what? The standard of God's perfect, holy law. Not other people, much less other fallen people. True righteousness is measured by God, not man. Not measuring yourself against other sinful, unrighteous men. You can't draw a straight line using a crooked ruler. The truly righteous person in God's sight is the one who is perfectly, flawlessly conformed to God's moral law. And anything else is but a mirage of relative righteousness, a mere self-righteousness, which is no righteousness at all. It's meaningless and worthless to compare yourself to others when God is the standard. You see, this is why Romans 3 is not exaggerating when it says that no one is righteous in God's sight because Romans chapter 3 is using the correct definition of righteousness, the only definition that matters, which is the law of God. Are you here today confident in your own righteousness? Do you think like the Pharisee? Well, but at least I'm not like other men. At least I'm not like the really, really bad people in this world. Well, but I have good morals. I try to be a good person. How can God punish me and not accept me for who I am? Because you must be absolutely good, absolutely righteous, in perfect obedience to Him. Are you that? Of course, this is where the common objection comes in, as people say, but what about those really good and nice and kind and charitable people who are doing such altruistic acts of kindness? You know, I think of the retired basketball player, Shaquille O'Neal. If you don't know who he is, well, you can't miss him. He's seven foot one. He's a giant. I mean, if you don't believe in Nephilim, my goodness, there is one right there. But Shaquille O'Neal, Shaq, He's, he's retired, really successful career. He's worth almost a half a billion dollars. And apparently, what he does these days, he goes around randomly just buying things for people out of generosity because he has so much. Whenever he walks into a Best Buy and a fan comes up to him and asks for a picture, he'll take a nice picture with him, give him a nice smile, but then he'll say, hey, pick anything you want here. You want a new laptop? 
You need one? New TV? I'll buy it for you. And he'll do that at the Best Buy, at the Target, at the Walmart, wherever he goes to shop. Now let's think about this from a Christian perspective. What do we make of this? How do we categorize this? Assuming that Mr. O'Neill does not profess Christ as Savior, only God knows, but let's just for the sake of argument assume this. Does it mean that his act of kindness, because he's not a Christian, is an unrighteous act? That it's evil? That just because he's not a Christian, what he did is an act of wickedness? No, of course not. It was kind. It was generous. It would be nice if more people behaved like that. But, but how God sees it is this. It's not that those acts are evil in and of themselves. Now, of course, it could be tainted with selfish motives, which is true of every sinner. But again, for the sake of argument, let's put that aside. It's not that those acts are in and of themselves evil, but that those acts are not enough. If you want God to measure you by your life, by your conduct, by your merit, then He must measure you by everything in your life. Everything. Not just the good things that you want Him to look at, but every sin, every hidden deed that's not good. Every dark thought of your secret heart, every tainted motive, every selfish attitude, every lust, every lie, every envy, every bitterness, every anger, everything. Are you sure you want that? Friend, don't you see? You are unrighteous before a perfectly holy and righteous God. This is why self-righteousness is a lie. It condemns you. Because you are inviting God to search your heart and mind and life, which He already sees, and you're inviting Him to judge you for it. And the delusion of self-righteousness is assuming that you will pass His judgment with flying colors. And that is a pride and an arrogance of the highest order. It is to exalt yourself above God by belittling His holiness and bringing His perfect righteousness down to the level of your base, crooked, sinful ways. And perhaps no one is in more danger than this than those in the doors of the church who spent all the years in the church, perhaps even serving in the church, involved in the life of the community, and you've got good conservative morals and you're committed to instilling them to your children and to your children's children. Now, who's to say that any of those things are bad? They're not. They're good things. They're good things, but it's not the good news. It's not the gospel. But how terrifying it is to think that churches everywhere are filled with people who have never come to realize and acknowledge that they are unrighteous sinners before God. And instead, they spend their whole lives living under just this Christian-flavored moralism. And they are headed to God's judgment seat, where upon being asked the question, on what basis should I let you enter into my heavenly kingdom? Their plan is to tell Him, because I went to church all my life. Because I served 
Many years. In this ministry or in that ministry. Because I know sound theology. Because I am reformed. Because I listen to Bible teaching. Because I appreciated and I adopted biblical values. And in doing so, they will remain unjustified. Remain in unrighteousness and be cast out of his presence forever. Remember the Pharisee here. Confided in what were even spiritual deeds. He was so familiar with the language of prayer. He knew how to thank God. He faithfully attended the temple service. And he was proud of it all. Confident that God would deem him worthy of eternal life. But again, if you want to be measured by any of your own works, even your spiritual works, your godly works, so to speak, your own efforts, then you must and you will be measured by all of your works, good and evil, clean and unclean. Beloved, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight because we need a perfect righteousness. And we know and we realize, as the Bible shows us, that that perfect righteousness is never within us, but it is all outside of us. One that we can never attain, one that we have already failed forever to attain, but one that must be accomplished for us. And that is the gospel, that Jesus Christ has come to take the place of unrighteous sinners, hopelessly condemned by the law, and He has come to redeem them by living the life of perfect righteousness for them. That's the good news, that you can be measured, not by your own life, but be measured by someone else's life of perfect righteousness and absolutely sinless obedience. This is what we need, friends. And He gives it to us freely, mercifully, if we simply confess our unrighteousness and trust in His righteousness. And that's why the tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, went home that day justified. Because look at his attitude and prayer in verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, not like the Pharisee, who by implication of this contrast, was standing probably as close to the holy place as possible because he, was, he deemed himself so worthy of it. How presumptuous. But the tax collector, standing far off, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast. Why? Because he was brokenhearted. It wasn't just an outward show. That's what the Pharisees did. But it was an outward expression of his inward contrition, his brokenness, his confession of his unworthiness. He saw himself as unworthy, not just of other, uh, not just of other people's regard, but unworthy and undeserving of God's favorable disposition toward him. How many people live life feeling entitled to God's favor? As if God owes them anything. That is a mark of a self-righteous man or woman. But here, this tax collector, he knows himself to be unrighteous. And so unlike the Pharisee who had an entire essay prepared for God, my goodness, it it was like a personal statement for college applications. But the tax collector here, he can only let his words be few. And says, oh God, be merciful to me. 
the sinner that I know I am. He doesn't mention the Pharisee, who is also there at, at the same time. He, he doesn't mention anybody else because he doesn't notice anybody else. It's just him before the righteous God because he knows that each of us must answer to God alone. You've heard people say, in the context of defending their actions and behavior, only God can judge me. Don't judge me. Only God can judge me. The fact that people say that, but don't feel terrified and instead self-justified, that's alarming. God can and will righteously judge every unrighteous person. And that's why we need the gospel. And the gospel is not just a sinner wallowing in his guilt, as if his penance is what atones for his sin. But gospel salvation is this. God says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Don't look to yourself. There's no hope in yourself, but look to me. I am gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Turn your eyes to Jesus, not to yourself, not to your sin, but turn your eyes to the Savior for help and rescue, which is exactly what this tax collector did. He cried out to God and he said, God, be merciful to me, for I am a great sinner. Now, it says be merciful in our English translations, but this is not the typical word for mercy as we see all throughout the Bible. Rather, the word, if I could render it literally, the word that the tax collector uses here is propitiation. He's literally saying, God, be propitiated toward me. Now, what, is, what does that mean? Here we go again, another word. No, I don't know what it means. Propitiation. It means the satisfaction of wrath. For God's wrath to be satisfied. That's what this tax collector is crying out for. And in this word, this choice of his word, just this one word is revealed, this tax collector's understanding, his faith of the holy character of God. That God cannot just forgive sin on a whim, just let it go. To do so would be an act of treacherous injustice because sin must be punished. If God doesn't punish sin, then he is not a good and just God. Criminals must be indicted and their sentence served for perfect justice to be upheld. Which means... That for sinners to be forgiven of sin, sin must still be paid for. And if not sinners, then someone else must pay for the full punishment of sin. God's eternal wrath upon sinners must be poured out and unleashed. And that is what Jesus came to do. To live the life of sinless righteousness for us. And to die the death of unrighteous sinners and bear God's wrath as though he had committed 
all of those sins, even though he was found without blemish or spot. You know, the Pharisee, when he saw the tax collector praying at the temple, he condemned the tax collector in his heart. He judged him. And as it says in verse 9, that Jesus told the parable to some who uh, trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Well, obviously Jesus is talking about the Pharisees. That's exactly what the Pharisee did. The Pharisee looked as he was praying, looked at the tax collector and treated that tax collector with contempt. He regarded him as worthless because he saw him as unrighteous. Now, of course, that was wrong. But listen, the reason it was wrong was not because that was the wrong judgment. But it was because he was the wrong judge. The Pharisee didn't understand that he too was under the same judgment of God as a guilty sinner. And so actually, the reality is that both the Pharisee and the tax collector and you and me, we all deserve to be treated with everlasting contempt by God. But with that in mind, what does it say later in chapter 23 in Luke's gospel in verse 11? As Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate and Herod, moments before he would be delivered over to be crucified on the cross, it says in that verse that Herod with his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. Why? Because Jesus was taking the place of unrighteous sinners like you and me. That he might take upon himself the judgment of God meant for us to satisfy divine justice and so be the propitiation for our sins. He completely swapped places with those he came to save in every sense. That we who trust in him and not ourselves He got our sin and we got his righteousness. That is why this tax collector was the one who went home that day justified, declared righteous by God because he cried out for God's propitiating work which is found and accomplished and finished in Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection. It was this tax collector, not the Pharisee, who received God's mercy because he was readily willing to confess his unquestionable unrighteousness and put his trust in the righteousness of another. Hence, Jesus says in verse 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled like the self-righteous Pharisee who exalted himself. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, what it means to believe in Jesus as Savior, which many people fail to understand, it doesn't mean just believing in His existence. But what is involved in believing Jesus as Savior is being willing to believe something about yourself, which not many people are willing to believe. That they are unrighteous, that they are sinners, and that they are rightfully condemned before God. But when the sinner comes to realize and confess that, how his eyes are open to see 
the, the wonder of the gospel that their hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And for all who humble themselves and trust in Jesus, that he alone is perfectly righteous and that he is sufficient for them, that God declares them perfectly righteous on the basis of Jesus' merits and virtue. You see, at the end of the day, listen carefully, at the end of the day, we are saved by works. But it's by the works of someone else. The works of Jesus Christ. And then there's our hope and trust in His works. That is gospel salvation. And church, this parable is so instructive to us as believers, isn't it? Because first of all, this teaches us, I think, such a pertinent and relevant lesson that we must be careful and be discerning of the culture in which we live and how it is affecting us in the smallest of ways. In the last five, ten years, but especially the last five years, the beast of self-righteousness has utterly overtaken our society. Are you, are you discerning enough as a Christian to notice that? That everyone is under this weird social, cultural pressure to broadcast to the world what virtuous act, thought, or choice they made. Look at me. Oh, I, I, I voted for this president and not that one. Look at me. Look at me. I made, I'm so good. Look at me, I support this cause. Look at me, I support that country in that war. You didn't even know that country existed before that. Look at me, I made this life choice because I care about others. Look at my bumper sticker. I support these rights. Look at me, I'm recycling, I'm saving the planet. Look at me, look at me. Don't you understand how much the world is teaching us to think self-righteously? Church, this is the antithesis of the gospel. And as those belonging to Christ, our only broadcast of the world must be, look at Christ. He is my righteousness. And I will boast in the fact that I have no righteousness apart from Him. He is my hope. He is my confidence. He is my virtue and all of my excellency. That is the gospel. And that must be on the lips and the lives of believers. But not only that, not only with with respect to our culture, the external things. But church, this parable reveals so much of the battle we must continually fight within, doesn't it? Because this leaven of the Pharisees' prayer is inside all of us. Maybe not as obnoxiously, but subtly and subconsciously. Just like the Pharisee who based his confidence of God's acceptance on his spiritual acts. Fasting, tithing, what have you. Don't we so easily fall into the mindset of measuring God's love to us on the basis of how well or unwell we are carrying out spiritual disciplines and duties. There's a lot more Pharisee in us than we realize, beloved. 
And church, we must daily grow to rest our confidence in Christ alone. In what He has done. In who He is. The the propitiation for our sins. That we must fight to believe the unchanging truth of the gospel that since we have been justified by faith, that we now have perfect peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. And may the Lord guard our hearts and minds with this all-sufficient promise of His gospel grace. Let's pray together. Our gracious and righteous God and Father in heaven, what a comfort it is that before you, though we are naked and exposed in your sight, with all of our uncleanness and all of our darkness laid bare before you, what a comfort it is and how comforting you are. The eternal consolation found in Christ that we can admit and confess our nakedness to you and that we can come to you with our hope confident in the clothing of Jesus' righteousness. Thank you for the gospel. Oh, would you help us to understand this more deeply, to believe this more richly. That not just when we were saved, not just as a means of getting into Christ, but the life that we live each day in Christ, that even that, nothing in our hands we bring, but simply to Thy cross we cling. And we thank You for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that You have given to us. That as we have heard the gospel with our ears, that now you minister the gospel to us through our other senses, visibly, tangibly, that we might be fed and be assured of the finished work of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Oh Lord, we ask that you would set apart these ordinary elements of the bread and the cup and use it to confirm your promise to us and to strengthen us in the weakness of our faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.